Emmaus Church is a church community delighting in Jesus together for the joy of Ankeny. We hope the following sermon brings you closer to the joy we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about us, please visit EmmausChurchAnkeny.com. All right, well, I am excited to jump into this text with you guys. As I was saying during our huddle this morning, you know, this is one of those texts everybody knows. It's uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000, he walks on water. And last Sunday, as I was reading it, as I was telling them this morning, as I was looking at it, I was like, what am I going to say that they haven't already heard? And then you jump into it, and like, it's. It's the best part of being a pastor is when you read the Bible and you think, what the heck is this about? Or this is boring or this is silly or this is confusing. And then you look at it and you just study it more and then it just blows your freaking mind. Well, that's what happened with this text. It does every week, which is why I love doing this. So even if it's only a few people listening to me, I don't care. It's too much fun. I got to tell everybody. So here it is. Uh, You've heard the phrase, I think George Bush, the junior, George W., I think he popularized this. It was kind of in the social sciences, this idea. But you've heard this phrase, the the soft bigotry of low expectations. I don't know if you've heard that. Uh, Clear, a clear, um, yeah, the soft bigotry of low expectations. Not expecting very much from somebody is a kind of bigotry is the idea, right? Um, And it worked its way out in social sciences regarding like um, African-Americans and the way they were treated in classrooms and things like that. Okay. Well, I've seen a really clear, uh, there's this, I I get caught up in these videos that kind of come in my feed and Facebook and I just kind of watch them as they just keep flowing in, in the video section. And they just capture my attention and I can't help it. And Facebook knows it and they just keep putting more of them there. Well, there's this guy, his name's Anatoly. He's, I think he's Russian or something like that. He's a uh, he's skinny guy and he makes these videos. He puts on a fake beard, skinny guy. He goes into um, workout gyms like where like big bodybuilders are lifting weights. Like these massive mountains of a man. Are, have these massive, uh, like on barbells, all like tons of weight. And they're just struggling to lift. And he's in there, he's in there as a cleaner. He's going in to clean and, and clean up the gym. And as he goes around, what he does is he goes up to these guys that are lifting these massive amounts of weight and really struggling and they're huge. And he goes over, the skinny little guy, he's cleaning, oh, excuse me, can I, can I clean? And they move out of the way. And then he just picks the bar up and just kind of walks around with it, sets it over here. And he goes and cleans and their faces are just like, what the heck did we just see? And every time it, the, the videos are hilarious. What they don't know is he's a world-class power lifter. And, but he looks like, just like he's built like Theoden. He's just a skinny little guy. <laughs> he's a skinny guy, right? <laughs> yeah. it's hidden it's hidden and the idea is is that these guys aren't aren't just aren't just amazed that someone can lift the weight they look at him and they say he shouldn't be able to lift this weight and that shock just kind of overwhelms him and you can see it because of the way he looks and the shock and amazement is not that the weight couldn't be lifted 
or that it could be lifted because they were lifting it. The shock came from the low expectations that they had being shattered. They had a kind of bigotry. They put a limit on him of what they thought he could do. And this morning, as we look at our text this morning, we see in action the sort of soft bigotry of low expectations regarding Jesus. We see it on full display that people, when they think about, when they look at Jesus, they just don't know what they're looking at. And so they just have really low expectations, really low anticipation in terms of who he is and what he will do. And up to this point in Mark, uh, Jesus has been teaching, blowing people's minds with his wisdom and authority. He has been healing the sick. He's been raising the dead, delivering people from demons. He's been standing up to the religious and political elite. He is popular. Crowds love him. They want to be near him. And then last week happened, right? We looked at the text last week, and we saw that Jesus is rejected by people in his hometown. This week, we find that even those who do follow him have, have hard-hearted, low expectations in Jesus. So we're going to see that come through. Even his close friends don't know who he is despite all they've seen and they've heard from him. Their expectations are still too low regarding him. Jesus' apostles know him, but they don't know him. They underestimate him. And as we see this, my hope is that you would be confronted with the bigotry of your low expectations in Jesus. That's what I'm hoping that you'll see. But then be filled with the hope of the gospel that Jesus wants to heal you of your hard-hearted, low expectations, that you would know him, really know him, and find your soul's delight in him. So we're going to do that. We're going to see that come out through those three sections. The first two sections are really just one. They're all the same story, uh, but we're going to break it up into three parts because, well, that's what preachers do. They do three points, right? So we're going to see hunger in verses 30 to 44. We're going to see help in verses 45 to 52. And then we're going to see healing in verses 53 to 56. And I trust that in seeing these things, it will help us to, um, as Jared Wilson, for some of you who know who Jared Wilson is, he's a professor, teacher at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. All of his podcasts, he says that he hopes to make Jesus big in your eyes. And I think that that's what this text will do, is help us see how big Jesus is. So first then, hunger in verses 30 to 44. It's a famous story. We all know the contents of this passage. This is a one of the more famous passages regarding Jesus in the Bible, where he feeds the 5,000. And what's going on here is that Jesus, just just in the passage right before this, earlier in verses 7 to 13, he, Jesus sends his disciples. He sends his disciples out with authority to preach and teach, cast out demons, heal people of, of sickness. And they're out, and it says there um, that they're coming in verse 30. The apostles come back to report to Jesus what they did and what, what happened. They were out doing all this wonderful ministry, and they had a lot of things to report. And in verse 31, we learn that they're tired and they're hungry. They're tired and they're hungry. And the reason they're tired and they're hungry is because when people went out and they saw that they had the authority and the power of Jesus, they flocked to them. They just they, they couldn't eat. They didn't have time to eat. They didn't have time to sleep. There were so many needs. People were bringing so many. They literally could not eat because people were so um, in need of the power of God for healing and help. They couldn't, they couldn't get any rest or food. And so Jesus in verse 32 wants to give them a break. He's like, look, you guys are tired. You guys are hungry. I'm, I'm going to basically take you guys on a little retreat. I'm going to take a little vacay. I'm going to get some respite. 
going to get some rest. And so in verse 32, it says that Jesus took them to a desolate place. They go to find rest and relaxation to get recharged for future ministry. And Jesus here, he's being very kind to them. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's trying to minister to them in their need. But in verse 33, we quickly learn that his little vacation plans are ruined uh, because people see them and Jesus taking off to the desolate place, to the place in the wilderness, and it gets ruined. People saw them going, and uh, their rest and relaxation now has turned into a space for ministry. So then we know the rest of the story. The disciples come up to Jesus because it's getting late in the day. There's these 5,000 men in front of them. There's all these people. They don't have any food. They're hungry, just like the disciples. Disciples didn't get to eat yet, right? They're still hungry and tired. And you have this entire group of 5,000 people hungry as well. And the disciples are like, Jesus, what are we going to do? We need to like send them home so they can get dinner tonight. And Jesus, he responds, well, why don't you guys take care of it? <laughs> which which you know, is crazy that, that he would say that, but he'd tell it. Why don't you guys? And they're like, look, it's going to take 200 denarii to go out for us to buy food for these people. And 200 denarii in that day is equivalent to about a year's wage for like a, like a blue-collar person today. So what, $30,000, $40,000 is what they're saying. We need about $30,000 to feed all of these people, which is just absurd, right? Because they're, they're just poor fishermen. What are they going to do? And then Jesus asks for what they have. And they say, well, we got two fish, five loaves of bread, and then we learn somehow that after Jesus prays God's blessing on it, all of a sudden, the entire crowd is fed to their full with these two fish and these five loaves. And there's so much left over. There's so much left over that there's 12 baskets of food overflowing with leftovers. They basically have a doggy bag, doggy bags overflowing with food. Right? Um, so. It's, it's just interesting. It's, well, it's amazing that two fish and five loaves of bread are fe- not only feeding 5,000 people, but there's more left over than what they started with. So it's, 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 it's beyond, it defies logic. It defies, defies anything that we know or are aware of. My question is, though, and I think this is what we need to be asking ourselves as we look at this text, is why is Mark showing us this? Why is he telling us this? It's told in all four Gospels. Most of the stories of Jesus only make it into one or two or three in each. It's one of the great things about having four different Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Um, but this one makes it into all four Gospels. And that should tell us there's something going on here. There's something important happening here. But the facts have already been established. Jesus has shown that he can raise the dead, calm a storm. So why do we need a story about fish and bread and hunger? Because it doesn't seem as impressive as talking to a storm and telling it to stop. We already know Jesus can do miracles. So why, why show us this? Well, simply put, it is not just to show us that he can do miracles. The purpose is to show us that Jesus is the king, reigning and bringing new life, and the people are just unaware. They're confused, and they're ignorant about who he is, and they need to see that he is the new reigning king. So we're gonna just—I'm gonna walk you through some things here to help you see this. And this is really gonna set the stage for 
everything else that comes after it. So in verse 44, we learn that this is no ordinary group of people following Jesus. We know that this is no ordinary group. We're told that this is a group of 5,000 men. That's, that's significant. This is not a family picnic. This is a group of 5,000 men. In verse 40, we see the way that they sit down to eat is weird. It's weird. Look at verse 40 with me. He says there, in verse 40, it says, So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. That's weird. What's that about? Right? So this is not, this is not a normal family picnic. What you need to understand is that this is a political event. This is a, a kind of political rally. It's actually a kind of rally, an attempt to actually formalize a coup on the Roman occupation of the Jewish political leaders who, who of, on, the Roman, on the Roman occupation and the Jewish leaders who were co co collaborating with them, the Jewish leaders who were in the pocket of, of the Roman government. It was the beginning of a political insurrection. This, uh, this is um, all the talk about insurrection today. This is the real deal here. This is a group of people that are literally seeking to overtake the government in this country. And it's a trend in this region. This is not the first time this has happened. There have been other people like Jesus who show incredible... Um, uh, who, who look like they're going to be the Savior. They look like they're going to be the Messiah. They look like they've got charisma. They do miracles. People are amazed by them. And we know because of history, there's Josephus and others who wrote history at the time, same time as the Bible during this time, where it, where it recounts all of the different people that rose up, and then the government learned that there was an attempted insurrection and coup, and then they would come and squash it. And where it all happened was in this region. This was this region, for whatever reason, was a was a place where uh, where there were men who really wanted to overthrow the government, and they saw Jesus and they thought, "This is our guy." And we know this explicitly because in John's recounting of this, this is how John explains it. Because in John chapter six, in verses fourteen and fifteen, they literally went to him to crown him as king. They wanted to crown him as king and then usher in this insurrection and, and take over the government. And Jesus saw that they were a sheep without a shepherd, as, as he says there in Mark 6.34. That these are guys who, who can't trust their current leadership. They're corrupt. Their current government is corrupt. They're exploiting the people. They're in the hands, uh, in the pockets of Roman governors, um, occup uh, occupying and oppressing the people. And they can't trust the Jewish leaders. They're exploiting them. And so they're looking for a new shepherd. They're looking for a new leader. And Jesus looks out and he says, oh, this is a group of people who are sheep without a shepherd, just as we read where? In Ezekiel chapter 34, right? And then that odd way they sat. If you're wondering what that's about, this is how military squadrons sat. This is how they gathered. In, in groups of uh, hundreds and fifties. It's how, they, or it's how military squadrons organize themselves. And what they did in the way in which they sat in front of Jesus was basically say, you're our king, we're your army, and we're going to go take out the government. That's what's happening here. Not a family picnic. Right. 
So they hungered for political, political change. They hungered for a new leader, a new shepherd, a new government, and so hungry for political change that they didn't think about food. That's how, that's how concerned these guys are. Now, there's that in your head, but let's step back even further for a moment to see what's going on here, because if we don't see this, we'll miss what is actually ha what Jesus is doing in this moment, because that's, that's the crowd, that's the crowd's motivation, but we need to see what Jesus has in his head and what Jesus is accomplishing in this, because it's crazy. So the first thing we need to note right away in verse 30 is something that should shock you based upon previous sermons that we've had in the book of Mark. Where's Jesus taking these disciples on vacation? Taking them to the desolate place. He's taking them into the wilderness. What we've learned throughout Mark up to this point is the wilderness is uninhabitable. The wilderness is the place where Jesus has done battle with the devil. The wilderness is the place where God's curse and God's judgment is. And Jesus is like, let's take a vacation there. I know you're hungry and tired. Let's go to that place. Right? What is that about? What is that about? How is it that now in verse 31, it's the choice place for rest and relaxation after the hard work of mission? How is it now that in verse 39, there's green grass flourishing for them to sit down and eat in? How is that possible? That's not a desolate place. That's not the wilderness. It's desert. But now in verse 39, there's green grass. How is it now that in verse 39, they eat in a place that is desolate. How is their food? How is their sustenance for their flourishing in the desolate place? That doesn't make any sense. How is it now that there are fish miraculously multiplying in the desert, in the desolate place, in the wilderness in verse 41? How is it that there's bread multiplying in the desolate place in verse 41? How do they sit in the realm of death, the uninhabitable place, and find themselves in verse 42 satisfied? How is that happening? That should not make any sense. How is it that in verse 43, that the uninhabitable desolate place, 5,000 men eat, and there's so much left over that 12 baskets cannot contain it. There's so much fruit, flourishing, and abundance of nourishment in the desolate place. How is that happening? It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be happening. What these men did not see was that Jesus was already the king. He was already reigning victoriously. They didn't see it. The desolate place was now his kingdom. He had pushed back Satan. He'd pushed back death. And he was causing life to flourish in the most uninhabitable place. Flourishing, abundance, is now the norm in the place where there was death. And this is, the, this is what we read in Ezekiel chapter 4. That's why we read that passage this morning. This is exactly what you saw. Shepherds who failed, God is going to be their shepherd. And it says explicitly in there, he's going to take them into the wilderness and he's going to transform it into a place with grass and abundance and fruit and flourishing. That is what's happening here. Jesus is doing Ezekiel chapter 34 right here, right in front of them. He's putting on full display his kingship and his power to transform not only people's hearts, and to raise the dead, but to transform the earth itself into a place that's habitable where joy and flourishing 
can happen. Jesus drove death and demons from the wilderness and that he was on his way to the cross where he would defeat them uh, fully in the blood of his cross and fully overcome them in his resurrection from the dead. And this is just the beginning of it. And rather than, rather than these 5,000 men going out to the desolate place to celebrate Jesus as the king, they thought they would take control. They thought they would use their power to enable him to rule. They got it backwards, right? They underestimated him. They did not see who it was that they were standing in front of. They didn't see what was going on. And in feeding them bread and fish on the grass in the desolate place, Jesus is kind of flexing his muscles in front of them. He's flexing his kingly God muscles in front of them. And they didn't see what, he, they didn't see what was going on. They were blind to it because they had so desperately misunder, misunderstood and un and did not uh, underestimate him. They had a kind of bigotry of low expectations toward him. Jesus was small in their eyes. He needed their help. He, he wants to be a leader. He's out leading people. Oh, we'll help him. We'll go make him king, and then we'll go fight for him. They're going to help him. And yet, Jesus shows them grace. Isn't that interesting? Jesus sees their low expectations of him. They don't, they don't understand what's going on. And then he feeds them. He doesn't judge them. He feeds them. He takes care of them. He, he cares for them. Uh, yeah. This just hits home to me so much because we too do not see the bigness of Jesus. We fail to see the fruit of his ruling and reigning. And we tend to think ourselves bigger than what we are. And we see him... As less. He's insignificant in our eyes. We look at him the way the people in Nazareth did. Oh, he's the son of Mary, a carpenter. Oh, he's just a prophet like John the Baptist or like Elijah. He's not God himself bringing life and flourishing uh, with him as God. That he already is king and rules with grace, bringing flourishing even to the desolate places. So my question this morning, I have a lot of questions for you. This sermon's full of questions. You're going to have to forgive me. <laughs> Do you see that Jesus is reigning in, in the desolate places, even in your life? Do you see that? Do you see that he, is bringing, he has come and is capable of bringing life even to the desolate, hard places, the places of death? And we're bidden here to enlarge our expe expectations and trust in Jesus um, and submit to him rather than um, try to tell him how he should be king, right? So, people are hungry. Jesus feeds them. Second, then, pe people need help in verses 45 to 52. Now, this is a continuation of the same story, but it we get a change of scene um, and a, ch a little bit change in, in what's happening, but it's all part of the same narrative here. Notice the abrupt change that we see. There's an abrupt change between verses 44 and 45. And what we find happening there is you see John or Mark's typical use of the word immediately in verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. The meal was had in the desolate place. They pick up their mess, and then Jesus and his disciples bolt. They run. They hightail it out, and they hightail it out fast because Jesus doesn't want them to make him king. Jesus is like, I, you're not, you're not, 
crown of me king. I'm already king. You know, enough of that business. So he and his disciples, they bolt. He sends the disciples away on a boat. He dismisses the crowd and he goes up on a mountain to commune with God. Okay, so that's, that's, that's what we find happening. And then in verse 47, we have the beginning of yet another famous Bible story. Jesus walks on water. And again, the dis- disciples are in distress on the sea amidst great winds. So we, 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 know, we know this story. There's a great wind. The disciples are in trouble. And we find Jesus walking on water. So what is happening here? In verse 48, it says there a strong wind was blowing. There in verse 48. And it says there that the disciples were not able to make progress, or that they did make some progress, but it says that they made progress painfully. Right? This is so interesting. In verse 31, Jesus knows. He acknowledges. These apostles are tired and hungry. Right? And rather than getting the rest they needed, they ended up serving 5,000 insurrectionists their dinner, cleaned up after them, and then Jesus puts them on a boat in the middle of a storm. What? Like, that's like nightmare. That's a nightmare scenario. Right? Horrible. Like, God, do you even care about us? They got to be thinking... They row the boat. Despite all their efforts, they can't row fast enough to make ground. In verse 48, they make headway painfully, it says. They're already tired, now physically exhausted, discouraged, and scared. And they're unable to go where they need to go. And no matter how much effort they spend to get forward, they only go back. I mean, how many of us feel that in life, right? I'm so exhausted. And yet God just puts another thing in front of me and I can't make ground. That's just, I mean, we all feel that. Work hard, make little progress, and the wind blows you back. You don't sleep at night because the kids wake you. Then you get up, clean the kitchen in your weary and exhausted state. Then the kids tear out their rooms in the morning and proceed to destroy the kitchen you just cleaned. Every mom and dad knows that to one extent or another, right? We all know what happens next, though, in this passage. They see Jesus walking on the water. And Jesus, they're struggling to make any progress, but Jesus gets out on the water and he's just strolling. He's just walking. There's no, no struggle. He just Not only is he walking on water, but he's walking in the face of the wind and ease. He's making progress. They're not, right? And then uh, Jesus gets in the boat with them and immediately the wind dies down. It's a wild scene. But again, we're bidden to ask what's happening here. Why are we being shown this scene? It's another one that makes it into three of the Gospels, not all four, but Matthew and John describe this scene too. So it's important. But why why do we need to see Jesus walking on the water here? What's what's the point of this? So uh, to help us with that, in verse 49, uh, it says the disciples thought that he was a ghost, that Jesus was a ghost. The word ghost in, in Greek is where we get our word for phantom. The Greek word is phantasma. Um, and uh, the word is uh, not used in the Bible anywhere else except for here and uh, where Matthew describes the same scene. There were um, the teens in the room this morning will be interested to know that there's been ghost stories since even before Jesus' time. Uh, people trafficked in these all over the place in Jewish culture as well as um, uh, in the pagan, um, the pagan religions that were around them all had myths that were about disembodied spirits or phantoms that would haunt places. So the disciples thinking that they're seeing a ghost is actually not very uncommon. 
at this time. This was a, this was something that was sort of in the cultural air that people would have naturally thought. And if the disciples could have, they may have called Ghostbusters at this moment, freaked out, scared at what they were seeing. I mean, you can imagine it. You're in a strong wind. You can't make headway. You're tired, and all of a sudden, you see somebody walking on the water. You're not thinking, "Oh, that, that's just a dude out to help us." You're, 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 this is a ghost. This is this is nuts. And verse fifty, they realize it's Jesus and not a phantom, which freaks them out even more, right? And it would freak you out even more. They're terrified. It says there. And in verse fifty-one, after getting into the boat with them and calming the winds, it says they were astounded. They're astounded. Now, there's two different ways to be astounded. Two different ways to be astounded. Well, there's probably more than that, but at least two different ways that you can be astounded by something. You can be astounded at a thing being done, or you can be astounded that someone in particular was able to do that thing. If I was doing CPR in front of you, you might be astounded that someone is having CPR done, being done on them. You wouldn't be astounded that I would be the one doing it because you all know that I'm a nurse, right? However, if a gunman came into this room and you saw me do a triple backflip into a front head kick, knocking the guy out, grabbing the gun midair, and disassembling it before it hit the ground, if you saw that, you'd not only be astounded that it happened, but you'd be like, Luke can do that? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> I'm not supposed to be able to do it, right? I would have to defy what you know and think of me. Here, the disciples are astounded at Jesus in this second way. Jesus does not just do something wild and crazy like walk on water and calm a storm. He does something that defies their understanding of who He is. They underestimate Him. In their minds, He was not capable of something like that until they actually saw it. After all, in the Old Testament, it's God who walks on water. We see that in Job 9, Psalm 77, Isaiah 43. God is the one who controls the water. He controls the earth. He walks on and treads over the water. He parts the water. He sets the boundaries of the sea. And in verse 50, notice this. Probably It's not as clear in English, but it's there. It's a good translation, but it's not clear. In verse 50, when Jesus gets in the boat, look at what he says to them. He says, take heart, it is I. Now, like I said, in English, that's not... It's a faithful translation. It just doesn't have the punch that it does in Greek. In Greek, it's ego me. I am. Jesus here uses the name that God uses of himself in calling Moses to go and deliver the people from Egypt. When Moses is in before, sitting before the burning bush, Moses says, God, who should I said, who should I say sent me to deliver the people of Israel? from slavery in Egypt, and, and God speaks from the bush and says, say that I am sent you. And then even the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the Septuagint translates that phrase in Greek to ego eimi, or a more literal translation is I am that I am. Jesus here calls himself God. He reveals who he is to the disciples, to the apostles. He says, I am who I am. And the disciples there are astounded, the second kind. You, you're God, right? You're the one. Now notice what Mark says about the apostles here. The reason why they were so astounded, the reason why they had this second kind of being astounded. It says, 
For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand what happened up in the, in the desolate places. They had hard hearts. Isn't that interesting? They had hard hearts. Remember earlier in chapter 6, in Nazareth, people are hard toward Jesus. He's just the son of Mary. He's not, he's not the Savior. He's not God. Others debating who he really is. You got uh, Herod thinking he's the resurrected John the Baptist. Others, oh, he's just Elijah. He's just a prophet. Or the insurrectionist thinking he's going to be a regional king to rid them of Rome and Jewish oppression. And the apostles here, their hearts are revealed to be just as hard. Their expectations, just as low. Their thoughts are too low for who this man is before them. They saw the healings. They saw demons flee. They saw death overcome. They watched him calm a storm earlier. He spoke to a storm and it obeyed him. They saw all this, and now we find out that when they saw the fish and bread multiply, and they saw this happen on the water, it still had not registered to them who Jesus really was. And it's because, it says here, their hearts are just as hard and confused as everyone else's. That should be shocking to us, right? At least I feel shocked by that. They did not know that Jesus was the great I Am, the one who told Moses to deliver God's people. How could they not see who He was? How could they not know who Jesus was? Reality is, you and I are not so different today. We know this. We know this. We experience this. Our hearts can be just as hard and our expectations before God can be as low. And we see this in, we see this in everyday life, but we also see it in relationship to God. I know in, in, in our life, my children, of whom I will not name, <clears throat> when they were little, wanted to put their own shoes on, right? They put their shoes on and they say, um, they don't recognize that as a parent I can help them and I'm more competent than them, but instead you hear this and all of you parents know this, I do it. I do it. Pride, self-sufficiency, I will figure it out. I will figure it out. Notice in verse 48, notice this in verse 48. And he saw, just speaking of Jesus on the mountain, he saw that they were making headway painfully. It doesn't say the disciples said, we're having trouble making headway. God help us. Jesus looks down from the mountain and he says, sees them going, I will do it. I will do it. And they never look up and be like, hey, Jesus, you want to come help us? Right? They just they didn't ask for help. They just rode. I do it, they said. But Jesus steps into the boat and makes clear who he is. He's God, the commander and ruler of the wind and the waves, and everything goes calm. Somehow the apostles knew Jesus but didn't. Somehow they saw him command the weather in the past, but missed that he was God, the God of the weather for today. Somehow you and I read stories like this and profess a statement of faith that declares the godhood of Jesus, yet we also keep fighting the wind, right? We keep fighting the wind, rowing, taxing our already exhausted and wore out bodies when we could be resting with God. When we could be resting with God. Jesus says to us in our struggle, he says this phrase from Jesus, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. 
So he, that, that was the hope that he had offered to the apostles and to everyone. And what Jesus does is he enters into the valley of the shadow of death with us. He enters into the boat with us. He enters into the valley of the shadow of death. And this is why Psalm 23 is amazing because, again, you have the wilderness, a valley of the shadow of death. And what's in there? Green grass and a meal to share with God. Feasting, healing, and joy right in the middle of the storm, right in the middle of the shadow of death. And that's what God calls his people to. Um, if they would but just see him and have eyes to see and ears to hear who he is. Jesus knows you're tired. He knows you don't get why it's happening and why things keep going the way they do. He knows you don't trust him the way he calls you to. But he calls out to you and me and he says, he says, don't be afraid. You're safe. Rest in me. He's paid for your sin. And he's coming to you in your distress to relieve you, to give you the rest that you so badly need. And the question for us is, do you have an oar in your hand still? You're still fighting the wind. Or will we rest in Jesus? So then last, last, as we turn now to the last thing, this will be much shorter. Um, healing in verses 53 to 56. We see healing. These verses show us what happened next. After they got to land, after they get to land, do they get to go off to vacation? Nope. More work. Verse 54, people immediately recognize it's Jesus. They flock to him with need of healing, and he heals them. Verse 56, he goes on around to various cities and villages doing the same thing, healing people, keeping people reaching out to touch him to receive healing. Like the work just, just explodes again. They're back at it all day, all night, serving people. But notice one change here. Notice a change. The disciple, the apostles here aren't in focus. All the attention goes back to Jesus. Jesus is the one doing the healing. Jesus is the one doing the healing. And I think the reason why Mark puts this here, the reason why God wants us to see this is because we're to see that the, the apostles aren't, aren't our hope. They're not the hope of the people. Only Jesus is. In fact, throughout the rest of this gospel, while the apostles do many good things, amazing things even, we're going to be confronted over and over again from the rep through the rest of this gospel with their brokenness, their failures, their sin, their humanity, their neediness and ignorance. And it's not done to demean them. It's not to shame them or belittle them. It's being put forward to make the message clear that Jesus is ultimately the hope. That Jesus is the hope. That Jesus is the King. And it's only through Him and through Him alone that new creation, flourishing, and hope comes. Yet what is equally striking in relationship to that reality is that Jesus is happy to still have his imperfect and perfect and ignorant and even still hard-hearted apostles out representing him and doing the work on his behalf. It's crazy, right? I mean, you look at the church today. The church is messed up. People are broken. Pastors like me are equally ignorant and dumb and do all kinds of stupid stuff. Yet, the reason why we move forward is because we know we're not the hope for Ankeny. We know we're not the hope for the world. We might have a theologically accurate statement of truth about who Jesus is, but we all keep rowing against the wind. We all keep failing to rest and trust in Jesus. And our ignorance is only a difference of degree from the world around us. Yet God is pleased to use us just as He did the apostles. And what great 
mercy and grace there is toward us that he would do so. That he would use us just as he did these dudes who are also broken. He continues to use them and minister alongside of them. And in Jesus going out to heal, he makes clear, he signals and shows. And I want you to hear this. This is key here. In Jesus going out to heal, he's signaling and showing that he is bringing healing to the hard hearts of people. That it's in him that the, the apostles have hope that their hearts could be healed. That their hardness could be healed. That they could be turned into soft hearts before God who see and estimate Him appropriately and see that He truly is the God of the world. This morning, if your vision of who Jesus is is too low, and I'm assuming it is, I know it's too low for all of us, then know He has healing for your soul. He has healing for your hard heart, and He has rest for you as well. By the blood of His cross and the power of His resurrection from the dead, He's one healing and hope for hard hearts that we might really know Him and really rest in Him. So you can go to Him and find rest. Do not harden your heart toward Him, but set down your oars, so to speak. Stop fighting and enjoy the party that He has for you in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death. Right? He has something for you even in that place. He's got bread, wine, green grass, and words of hope for you. He sees your struggle. He sees your needs. So lift up your expectations. Lift your expectations for him up. See him up on the mountain and call him for help. And he will come for sure. And he'll dwell with you in safety. Now, you'll notice here, the very last sentence of this passage says, And as many as touched it, Jesus' garment, were made well. Josh is going to tell us what that means, I think. <laughs> Mark chapter 7 is key passage to help us with that. And I'm going to tee Josh up right now. And I want you guys to anticipate what all this touching of Jesus is about and why healing comes through Jesus' touch rather than him being unclean. So that's just a little teaser. You're going to get it in two weeks. So. Uh, yeah, between now and then, I uh, anticipate that. So anyway, let's pray and ask God's blessing on us as we continue to worship Him. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for, um, man, just these stories are so important. And um, it's really important for us to not only see that You can do miracles, but Lord, to see what You're what you're trying to accomplish through those miracles, that you're not just feeding hungry people or providing relief to exhausted men rowing, that you're not just bringing health to people who are sick, but that you are restructuring the universe itself and bringing new hope and new life so that we can dwell with you in peace and flourish with you. And I just pray that you would give us eyes to see you clearly and that you would not leave us in our hard-heartedness, but show the grace that you showed these people here um, to us, uh, that we would be fed, nourished, rested, and helped uh, by you. And Lord, ultimately to have our hearts healed, that we would see you and enjoy you the way you desire for us to 
enjoy your presence. So we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.